Welcome to the second podcast being broadcast to you today from Key West, Florida. Today, I'm going to focus on Hemingway's time here in 1932 and 1933. You'll recall from the first podcast that the Hemingways first came to Key West in April of 1928, and they only spent six weeks here in their first visit, but it was certainly enough for Ernest to know that he liked it here a lot. And Pauline was ambivalent, but she had met a good friend named Lorene Thompson. Lorene was married to Charles Thompson, and the Thompson family owned a great deal of business properties in the Key West area. They owned a hardware store. They owned a turtle manufacturing and uh, a processing plant, which was a big industry then. And Charles was a good-looking, kind man, but he also shared Ernest's love for the outdoors. So, Key West was an attraction for the Hemingways, and for Pauline, it was especially attractive, not because of the weather or the fishing. She really liked Lorene Thompson and wanted to get to know her better. And of course, anywhere Ernest was, Pauline wanted to be, because she totally enjoyed being Mrs. Ernest Hemingway, because he was this up-and-coming young writing star, and she was of high society. So, setting the stage, by the end of 1931, the Hemingways had been to Key West four times, in 1928, 29, 30, and now they had returned in 1931, and, uh, and it was time for them to settle down. And Pauline had asked Lorene to help them find a place that would be a writing compatible place for them. Uh, they were, you know, money was not an object really because Uncle Gus had promised to buy the home and uh, Uncle Gus indeed did buy the house at 907 Whitehead Street. And I'm broadcasting this from the library here in, uh, in Key West. It's called the, the name of the library is the Monroe County May Hill Russell Library, and at 700 Fleming Street. That's where I am, and it's probably a 10-minute walk to Ernest's uh, home here that he so much loved and enjoyed his first few years here. So let me go back to my notes here just so I don't get any facts wrong. Well, yeah, by Christmas Day in 1931, imagine if you're Pauline. She had just given birth to her second child, Gregory, Hemingway. Gregory Hancock Hemingway was a big baby and he was born on November 11 in Kansas City, Missouri. But Pauline had delivered him cesarean C-section just like she had done with Patrick. And it was impossible now for her to have a third child. And Hemingway wasn't really happy about this because he had always wanted a daughter. But nonetheless, he was happy now having two sons, but he couldn't have a daughter anymore. But more, and, and very importantly, Pauline, if she, had a, if she became pregnant again, she probably was in danger of losing her life. And she was against using contraception because it was against the Catholic Church's uh, uh, dogma. You know, uh, contraception was not allowed. So she and Ernest had really no other option but to perform coitus interruptus. And Hemingway was not keen on that idea. 
because he was a big, virile guy, and uh, he referred to his male member as Mr. Scrooby. And Mr. Scrooby was not too happy about having to cut back on his on his uh, uh, sexual prowess. Um, but poor Pauline, she's in bed recovering, and the house is like there are workmen everywhere. The the walls needed to be replastered. The new floors had to be laid. The roof needed to be re, uh, uh, redone. The wine cellar was a mess, and Ernest and Pauline both loved their wine, uh, especially the Parisian wines from Bordeaux and the uh, Rioja wines from, from Spain and uh, the Valparaiso, I'm not pronouncing that right, from Italy. Um, so... The point is, the house was a mess, and Pauline was feeling ill, and all this work was being done. And what was Ernest doing? He was out fishing with his buddies. Bra Saunders had a boat, and then later on, he went fishing with Charles's boat, and his boat called, uh, um, uh, it doesn't matter what it was called. Um, he later met a guy named Josie Russell, who had a 32-foot cabin cruiser named the Anita, Hemingway was, Hemingway was meeting all these people and he was inviting his literary friends and his uncle Gus. He was inviting the mob, as he referred to them, to go fishing with him. They included the artist Mike Strader, the poet Archibald MacLeish. Charles Thompson went fishing with him. Uncle Gus came down and was thrilled to be going fishing with his literary son-in-law, not son-in-law, but kind of like his son-in-law because Pauline was like a daughter to him. And so they went fishing to the Dry Tortugas and they saw Fort Jefferson. But Ernest had heard that the fishing was even better in the deep blue waters of the Gulf Stream off the coast of Havana and between Bimini and the Bahamas. And so before you knew it, you know what? He had hired Josie Russell to take him fishing for the deep, the, the, the deep fishing for blue marlin. And Josie was this crusty bar-owning, rum-running guy. He owned a bar called The Blind Pig, which is just a half a block down for what is now uh, the famous bar here called Sloppy Joe's. And uh, he had changed the name from the Blind Pig to Sloppy Joe's. I think it was in 1934, partly at the behest of Hemingway, who encouraged him to change the name uh, from the Blind Pig, which was the name of many kinds of speakeasies during Prohibition, to one of Ernest's favorite bars in Havana called uh, the Sl Sloppy Joe's. Well, we all know that... Um, you know, Hemingway fell in love with, with uh, deep sea fishing off the coast of Havana. He fell in love with the Cuban people. And though he may not have fallen in love with Jane Mason, he certainly did have a, an attraction for her. And what may have started off as a platonic friendship later developed into something more. And I'll tell you more about that in a few moments. Well, he loved fishing so much and he had had some incidents where he wasn't feeling well and he had some health issues that prevented him from going on the safari in, uh, in 1932. So he decided to postpone that and go fishing or go to the, on the safari later in 1933. When not fishing in Cuba, Ernest was working diligently on Death in the Afternoon. He called this his bullfighting book and he wrote this 
in his writing studio here in Key West. And if you've ever toured his writing studio, you know how, what a wonderful, charming little place it was for him to work. Um, while working up there on Death in the Afternoon, he would get page proofs known as galleys from his publisher. And he was annoyed that at the top of each page was his name and then the first word of the, the book's name, death. So at the top of each page, he had to stare at the word Hemingway's death. And uh, he berated Max Perkins, his editor and agent, because he hated to have to look at that every time he sat down to review one of the pages. Um, in July, where did Ernest go? He took off for the high country in, uh, in uh, Wyoming and Montana, where he wanted to go back to the Albarty Ranch, which he had discovered back in 1930. And here he could hunt for uh, bear, for elk. He could hunt for uh, uh, mountain goats. Um, but again, he got sick. He, uh, he had first gotten bronchial pneumonia before leaving for the Albarty Ranch. And then he came down with uh, just a regular old sore throat later. Um, but he had something to celebrate. In September, on September 23rd, Death in the Afternoon was published, and he was thrilled, as all authors are, to see his book in print. But what he wasn't thrilled about is he got some bad reviews. Uh, many good reviews, but one of the bad reviews came from this big guy named Max Eastman. And Eastman became a literary rival because Hemingway, of course, didn't like bad reviews, but um, in one of the reviews, this Eastman character had questioned Hemingway's um, uh, sexuality, he questioned his manhood, and he questioned, you know, whether or not he really went on these, you know, deep sea fishing expeditions and big game hunting trips in, in uh, Wyoming and Montana. So Eastman questioned Hemingway's manhood, virility, and, and courageousness. And uh, Hemingway addressed this in a letter to uh, Archibald MacLeish in June of 1933, which I will get to in just a moment. But let's finish out 1932. Um, what happened in the rest of 32? Well, on October 16, Charles Thompson and Ernest were leaving uh, Montana in a heavy snowstorm. And can you picture them driving in a vehicle here on those roads back in the 19, early 1930s? You can't go more than a nine, uh, probably 40 miles an hour, but in a snowstorm, you're probably crawling along at 15 or 20 miles an hour, and you could barely see the road. And Charles and Ernest would hold up a tin can with a candle in it to keep the windshield defrosted. So I just had to tell you that because it's a funny image in my mind's eye with Ernest and Charles heading through god-awful Kansas during a god-awful snowstorm. And when I say god-awful Kansas, I mean in a snowstorm. No, do, no disrespect to Kansans. Um, another interesting note is uh, while Ernest was, um, was in Piggott, Arkansas at the end of uh, uh, December, they were screening a movie version of A Farewell to Arms. And he refused to attend the screening of that movie because he hated the fact that the Hollywood producers made the ending to the movie a happy ending. Ernest hated it. If you remember in the book, Lieutenant Henry, Lieutenant Frederick Henry 
had just lost his wife because she died while giving birth to a stillborn baby boy. And uh, Lieutenant Henry was already down because he had gone AWOL and had fled the war. And when he fled uh, the, with the Italians uh, in the war in 1917, when the Italians were fighting the Austrian enemy in World War I. Hemingway didn't like the ending, but at least he got a big hefty royalty for that from, uh, I think it was Fox um, in, in Hollywood. Um, and interesting, another side note is who starred? It was Gary Cooper. And Hemingway didn't know Gary Cooper at the time, but uh, uh, 10 years later, not quite 10 years later, he was to meet Gary Cooper in Ketchum, Idaho, when both of them had been invited to be celebrity guests at the swanky Sun Valley Lodge uh, right there in Ketchum. So now let's enter 1933. It wouldn't be a bad idea to put on a little music here to set the tone. Uh, let me turn the volume up just a touch um, if I can. Um, in this transition, why am I in Key West? I'm visiting my cousin, Jim Vust, who lives in Miami, but I'm not just visiting him. I'm establishing residency in, here in Florida. Um, since I retired a year ago from being a university professor in California, I decided to make Florida my home for several reasons, uh, one of which is the climate. Another one is uh, I need to establish a place in America to uh, obtain health care, uh, Medicare namely. Uh, I want to vote in the Florida elections because Florida is a state that can go red or blue and I have very strong political convictions and I want to be able to vote uh, as a citizen of Florida. Last and not least, the state of Florida does not have state income tax, so my pension income is not subject to such tax. So, okay, intermission is over. Let's go back now and look at Hemingway, 1933. What happened to him then? Let's turn off the music. And I'll go back to my notes here just to see here. Well, Pauline's still happy. Ernest is not entirely unhappy with Pauline, but his sex life is not what it used to be. Um, he's probably been having an extramarital affair with Jane Mason at this point. Uh, and here we are in 1933. And in January, Ernest meets a guy called Arnold Gingrich. And Gingrich was founding a brand new magazine tailored for men, especially men who uh, um, liked the outdoors, who liked to fish, who liked fashion. And uh, Gingrich said, hey, Ernest, if you write 10 short articles for me for my new magazine in the, for the next year or so, maybe one article every couple months, I'll give you 250 bucks an article. Hemingway, who hated always being... Uh, on the receiving end of Uncle Gus Pfeiffer's uh, generosity and munificence, um, said, look, yeah, I'll do that. I'll take that $2,500. I'll write these short articles, and I'm going to use it toward my purchase of my own boat next year in 1934. Because Ernest had his mind no, now set to buy a boat of his own. He didn't want to have to pay Josie Russell uh, a fee to go fishing. He wanted his own boat, and by gosh, he was going to get one uh, from the Wheeler Stockyards in, 
in uh, Brooklyn. But that's a story for another day. Um, the point is, Ernest didn't like having always to, re uh, to, um, to rely on Uncle Gus, and he could buy his own boat if he just did this small, uh, small favor to Gingrich. But Hemingway was a PR uh, guy, too. He thought by keeping his name out there in the public, public eye and just writing short what he called letters uh, for uh, Esquire, that he could help build a reputation and ultimately um, the legend that became the myth of Ernest Hemingway of the man who was fishing for the big marlin and tuna, who was carrying a gun, who accidentally shot himself in the leg with a revolver while trying to gaff a shark you know, while drinking with his buddies in the bars and, and uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about here. So he got the money. He didn't need the, he didn't need that much money now from his royalties, from the movie. Um, but he and Pauline are starting to grow further apart. Um, of note, on April 12th, he, Charles, and Josie Russell head back to Havana. And he's going to use the Hotel Ambos Mundos once again as his home base. And on board now is a man named Carlos Gutierrez, who um, became the first mate for Ernest uh, later on the, the Pilar. And nobody knew marlin fishing like Carlos. And Carlos was an old fish hand who knew how to find the marlin, how to catch the marlin. And uh, he was he was an older kind of gentleman. And... Some say that Ernest used some of Carlos's uh, characteristics as material for The Old Man in the Sea, which he was to write in 1951. Frequent guests here on the Anita were Jane Mason. Um, we kind of know how their story's gonna go. He and Jane are having a time of their lives in Cuba. But then on May 24, Jane has a car accident. In the car with her are Patrick and Bumby, Ernest's two oldest sons, along with Jane's oldest adopted son. And that car accident didn't hurt her that much, but it caused her to have some issues. She was dazed, but even though hungover from the night that night, she went fishing with Ernest's group. Believe it or not, she landed two marlin. Jane, not only was she beautiful, she could swear like a sailor. She could catch fish like the best of fishermen, as we could tell by her landing the two marlin. She would speed around in cars, and she could drink. And Ernest loved her freewheeling style and her joie de vivre. But she wasn't marriage material, of course. And she started to go a little bit wacky on him. And uh, um, we'll see that in the middle of June, something happened again to Jane that prompted Ernest to write his friend Archie McLeish about his relationship, uh, kind of, with Jane in an indirect fashion. Let me look at the time here. I've got another maybe seven or eight minutes in this podcast because this particular time period was fascinating. You know, he was prolific. He was writing. He'd finished Death in the Afternoon. He was writing... Winner Take Nothing, his collection of short stories. He submitted the final manuscript to his editor here, uh, Max Perkins, on July 13 of 1933. 
The last story that he finished was called Fathers and Sons, another remarkable short story. And after fishing for the summer on July 19, Ernest and Josie Russell went back to Key West. There waiting for him was Pauline. After a couple weeks in Key West, what happens? Ernest and Pauline, along with Pauline's sister Jenny, Bumby and Patrick, all five of them arrive in Havana, and then they set sail for Santander, Spain. They arrived there on August 17, and this was an 11-day journey. Mind you, this was not a six-hour or seven-hour plane ride. This was a long ride, seven, no, 11 days. Ernest and Pauline play around Europe. They go to Spain. They go to France. They, uh, um, they see the bullfights. They get some sun in Andai on the beach, which they loved. Um, Ernest writes another letter for the Esquire. He finishes an article, article called The Friend of Spain, a Spanish letter. So he dashes off a letter, makes a cool $250. Um, he it, you know, enhances his reputation of the world traveler seeing the bullfights, and he's just checking in from Spain. Um, cool. Ernest has got life by the tail, but life is not always easy when your eye is elsewhere. When you take your eye off the fa family, things happen. Well, on November 15, Charles Thompson meets Ernest and Pauline in Paris. And what do they do? They make their way down to Marseille, France. France. They board a steamship. They go through the Suez Canal down to Mombasa, Kenya. They make their way over to uh, the capital of Kenya. And uh, before you know it, they're on, a, they're on a farm ready to make their first safari in Eastern Africa. And that's a story for another day. Before closing this, let me send, let me read you the letter, a part of a letter that Ernest wrote to Archibald MacLeish. And it's noteworthy that this letter is dated June 13, 1933. And listen carefully. And he refers to a bad review he got from Max Eastman. And he's angry at being, at his manhood and his bravery being questioned. Um, he's also mad that maybe even his masculinity or his sexuality is being questioned. So he, in this letter, you can see Ernest sticking out his chest, wanting to prove to Archibald MacLeish that he really is a he-man. So here we go. Here's the letter. Do you remember that girl I asked, asked you to go and see in the hospital in New York? Jane Mason? She broke her crap, cracked a couple of vertebrae in her back and has been sick as hell. Damn bad luck. She had Bumby and Patrick in the car with her. It rolled over three times down a 40-foot embankment. Bumby and Patrick were unhurt. Bumby to his credit, said, Don't worry, Mrs. Mason, I'll get you right out. I suppose they'll try to prove that Bumby's a yellow, impotent bastard, too. Well, the hell with it. God damn it, 
I don't know how many wounds I have, have had. I've never been attracted to a man in my life, nor wanted to fuck a woman bad enough that I didn't fuck, except when I was a kid and shy maybe, and, or wives of friends, or maybe relatives. I've written as well as I could and supported my family and some friends. I've been shot, cut, bruised, broken. I've never gone a year without being in considerable physical danger. And I haven't been scared for five years. As to my sexuality, I've came seven times in one night. And, you know, sometimes I've been unable, unable to come when I'm too drunk. But I went a year and a half having sexual intercourse at least once a day. Now, what the hell constitutes a man having confidence in himself as a man? Yeah, that's me. That's Kurt speaking now. That's, there's a lot to dissect in that letter. But he refers to Mrs. Mason and, and her injuries. But then he jumps into a discussion of his sexual prowess and how he is not gay and that he's sexually attracted to almost everyone and that he could have almost any woman he wanted. Of course, he couldn't when he was young and a kid. He didn't know any better. And of course, he wouldn't do, you know, he wouldn't be with the wives of any friends. I guess Grant Mason wasn't a friend because he certainly seemed to be having a good time with Jane. Um, just saying. Okay, guys. I'm going to turn on the music here as I read to you the last couple pair, uh, a portion of chapter seven of my forthcoming book called Hemingway, New Perspectives, New Inspiration. And this chapter that I've written is called Pauline, Ernest's Greatest Betrayal. Here's what I've written. I hope you enjoy when Jane Mason entered Ernest's life in 1932, Pauline had to brace herself. She knew Ernest well. He couldn't stand to be alone, and she knew he probably couldn't fall in love with a, with a woman without marrying her. After all, she, Pauline, was living proof. Thankfully, Jane was too unstable for Ernest, and, it, and she didn't worry Pauline much. Pauline would give Ernest a long leash for a while, but by the mid-thirties, she became desperate for affection. She, she changed her hair color. She cut it shorter, the way he liked it. Would this work? Did she consider using contra contraception? Nope, church wouldn't permit it. And she had to be very careful when being with Ernest. Another pregnancy could put her life in danger. And even though Ernest desperately wanted a daughter, Pauline wasn't the woman to provide it. Technically speaking, coitus interruptus wasn't doing the job for Ernest but she wasn't willing to use contraception. Should she make, to, make an appeal to him about their two boys and how they would be affected by a divorce? No, she wouldn't do that. Neither she or er, nor Ernest really knew their sons that well. 
They weren't good parents to small children. Ernest's first priority was always his writing, and her first priority was always Ernest. Sure, she could make occasional reminders about her family's wealth, and if he left her, what would he be giving up? Even though he sometimes barked about how the rich were blunting his powers of observation and affecting his writing, man, it was still a lot better to have more money than less. By himself, Ernest himself couldn't afford extravagant luxuries, at least not yet. Uncle Gus had funded the apartment in Paris. He bought the house for them on 907 Whitehood Street in Key West. He funded, he bankrolled the safari, $25,000 during the midst of the Depression. He bought them new Ford Roadsters whenever they wanted them. Ernest knew that deep well would never run dry so long as he stayed with Pauline. Ernest referred to his male member as Mr. Scrooby. And Mr. Scrooby eventually won out when Martha Gellhorn walked into his life at Sloppy Joe's Bar in December 1936. My next podcast will talk a little bit about meeting Ernest, or meeting Martha at the end of 1936, and we'll talk about what happened to Ernest in 1935, 34, 35, and 36. I hope to bring these to you from Key West, but I'm leaving tomorrow, so I might only be able to do one more if I'm lucky. Um, I'll do the others either from Miami or maybe from my apartment in Andai, France. Sorry for the length of this podcast. It's just right at 30 minutes, but I think... If you're a Hemingway fan, you you know a lot of this already. If you're not well-versed in Hemingway, I hope I've shared a little bit more about his life that has been of interest to you and you'll learn more about him. Until next time, au revoir and a bientôt.